Okay, we began last week a series. Um, we began a series on the thirteen ikrim, the thirteen, the yud gimel ikrim, as they're known, the thirteen fundamentals or uh, thirteen articles of faith, if you like. Different names have been given, which are classic composition of the Rambam, and um, we're beginning to hopefully have some kind of series in which we look at some of these things. I'll try to do it in such a way that you are not going to be lost if you are not here at each one, but obviously it will be make sense if you um, if you can, so that you will see the continuity. Perhaps we try to record them so that we can you can pick up the the ones that you've missed, and it will be a meaningful series. But let's try to put our heads into the concept. Let's try, let me try to draw up a very brief summary of what we laid down last week, and I think we left off with a few questions and problems, right? which no doubt all of those who were here have solved right very easily, I'm sure. After all that we studied together, I'm sure it was just a very easy exercise. But just to confirm that you got it right, we will try to, you know, to look at it and see if we can provide some of the answers and take it further um, this evening. The let me permit me a brief re- recap or revision to put us back, put ourselves back in the picture, and try to reintroduce some of the questions and see if we can draw them to a conclusion which gives us principle or principles perhaps deeper than um, than meets the eye. Okay, the 13 articles, without controversy each week, the whole, <coughs> the whole thing, but these are 13 fundamental issues that are known as the 13 articles of faith. You should please look them up if you intend to follow this through and have it developed. Certainly look them up yourself, study them. The more you have prepared, the more you'll get out of the discussion or discussions. They are easy to find because there's a very concise phrasing of these 13 that's printed in every sitter after the morning uh, <coughs> prayer service, after the after chakras. Is, and the reason it's printed there, many people have a habit to say them every, every morning. These 13 are not, in fact, the original <coughs> wording. These, in fact, are not the original wording of the Rambam who, who composed these 13, but they are a very, very close... A pr- um, summary, let's say, digest of compressed digest of his 13 principles, and it's more convenient. I brought I brought that text today because it's just much easier to work with, and since it contains the essence of these 13 places, possibly, probably the place to begin. These are 13 fundamentals, and I read through them in detail last week. Belief in the existence of of the Creator, Hashem's existence, belief in His oneness, belief in His non-corporeality, His, his non-physicality and so forth, prophecy, prophecy of Moses, um, uh, the the concept of reward and punishment, the concept of the resurrection of the dead, coming of the Mashiach. These are the fundamental articles of creed or belief. This statement, um, the statements here, have rephrased the Rambam's teaching on this into creedal statements. The Rambam goes through these 13 in philosophical discussion, explains what they are. They've been rephrased here very succinctly as Animamin Be'emun Shlema. they each begin like that, I believe with a perfect faith, Etc. That Hashem exists, that He's one, that He has no body or no diagrammatic representation, etc. So, although these are not His words, but they follow Him very closely, and I, th- I think I pointed out, I hope I did last week, that the well-known 
Torah uh, Yigdal Yigdal that many shuls sing right some people say daily and many shuls say that on Shabbos is 13 lines long and if you study it it should be no challenge to see that these 13 poetic statements in Yigdal are none other than these 13 articles now the question that we asked last week let's try and summarize it succinctly is this first of all we pointed out a few facts. Let me try and lay them out for you. I hope that even those who were here will benefit from the, from the summary. We said this. First of all, this list of 13 that the Rambam has composed here, Maimonides talking uh, 800 years ago, the, this list here presents a number of challenges. One is the question of a source. Where is the source for this 13 list? There are no 13 things like this mentioned in the Torah. The Torah mentions 10 things, 10 commandments. That's easy to identify. But the Torah doesn't go through a list of 13 things, certainly not these. The Mishnah, seemingly, that, that, that repository of the oral law that we call the Mishnah, seemingly doesn't go through these 13 either, apparently. We'll see where it does, in fact. But on the face of it, it doesn't. So where did the Rambam get these 13 from? That's the first question. The Rambam doesn't make up things. Right? He's, a compile, he's compiling the Torah sources, right? It's not his... And not, not only do we not suspect the Rambam of not making up his own material, certainly not fundamental material. If these are 13 things on which the whole Jewish faith or Jewish path or Jewish uh, cause rests, then these are not things that you sort of, you know, you make up because they sound like good ideas. These are, these are rock-bottom issues. They have to be expressed in the most basic of Jewish sources, right? Obviously. And therefore the question is, what is his source? The next question is, hopefully we'll answer all these questions, that the Bala Ikrim, of Yosef Albo, great commentary, <coughs> subsequent to the Rambam, takes him to task on this list. He wrote a book on the subject, and he takes the Rambam, he argues, he raises many, many questions, okay? Apart from the question of sources, he says, what is the nature of this list? What are these 13 things? And he explains that these issues are to be understood as fundamentals. These are the foundations. The difference between a foundation and another part of the structure is obvious. If you pull a brick out of the wall, so then the house still stands. But if you put an element out of the foundation, then the whole house collapses. There's a big difference between a foundation and a peripheral detail. These are foundations, meaning that it's not possible to talk about Torah and about Judaism. And, in fact, about religion in general without these things. Even without entering the zone of Jewishness and Judaism, you can't talk about religion. If religion generically means that there's an infinite creator and master, and he instructs his creations, gives them ta a task to fulfill with some result in mind, if that's the definition of religion, without getting into the technicalities and details of Jewish religion, then you can't have a religion without certain fundamentals. You have to know that there's a creator. You have to know that he speaks to me in some way, right? That he gives me certain instructions and that will have consequences. You have to at least know that. If that's true, says the, says the agreement, you don't need 13. Again, if the fundamentals are to be understood, right, stay with me please, if the fundamentals are to be understood as things that are philosophically foundation, that means these things are the, that upon which the whole structure of a, the notion of religion is built, you don't need 13. Right? And he says very clearly, you only need three. And I'm sure you can work them out for yourself. Existence of a creator, Torah min the fact that the Torah is given, that means that it tells us what we're supposed to be doing, it issues instructions, and thirdly, the result, reward and punishment, which is where you're going. Why do you need more than that? And if you tell me you need more, then you need a lot more than these. If you say, no, you want to be exhaustive, well, there are a lot of other things you need. What about free will? There's nothing more fundamental in the philosophical notion of religion than free will, because you can't be ordered and held to account 
and, and you can't begin to talk about reward and punishment unless you have free will. On the contrary, reward and punishment is not really the issue. Free will is the issue. Reward and punishment is a consequence that fits, etc., etc. Uh, are you with me? Furthermore, if you really want to be exhaustive, you need the whole Torah. Because, because there are many, many things in the Torah. You see, the Rambam himself says, not no less a source than the Rambam himself says, that there's nothing in the Torah that's not fundamental. The Rambam explains that if you pull out one letter or one word or one concept of, in the text or of the concepts of the Torah, you've destroyed the whole thing. It's like an electric circuit, it's an organic entity. When you pull a piece out of an electric circuit or some tightly bonded organic entity, the whole thing ceases to have any meaning. One crack in one letter of the Sefer Torah, so it's not legible, so that the letter's invalid, the whole Torah is in. Just like one crack in the wire of your electric circuit or your delicate electronic equipment, one millimeter gap. Uh, is enough to invalidate the whole thing. Ah, on average, most of it's there. All the parts are there. There's just one tiny space that shouldn't be there. Aren't you getting obsessive? Answer is no, because not alive without that gap, right? You, that's the way you feel about your genes. You know, if I, if I wanted to take out one of a billion genes, and I said to you, look, you've got most, it's just going to be a little gap in your genetic, you wouldn't be happy. You wouldn't be happy. In fact, uh, you'd be very unhappy. And therefore... <laughs> Therefore, says the Rambam, if you pull out one sentence, the example he gives is the Achais Lotan Timna, and the sister of Lotan was Timna. You pull out that verse, what difference does that make to the ethical system that we call the Torah? Does it make any difference? Says the Rambam, it makes all the difference. Because you pull that out, the lights don't come on, it's not a Torah, it's invalid. Now, if that's true, why are these 13 things more fundamental? If, you, if your notion of fundamentals is that which is necessary to build the structure, then why have you picked out these 13? So, so let's decide. Either pick out things that are really fundamental, you only need three. Yeah? or you, you, you want to make it more extensive then, 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 then you need much more and if you tell me you don't need much more then why these? do, do you hear the, the direction of his question? and the next question we asked was the next question we asked was that when you look at the source <coughs> other questions uh, um, arise so let's, uh, let's go to our first question which is what is the source for these 13 I'll try and make it plain last week we went into a lot of detail about a lot of issues here to introduce the subject as, an, as a, just a way of entering this fascinating zone but which is appropriate for this time of year because we're moving towards the summer which is a difficult time of Tammuz and Av and after that we move into Elul which is the time of Tshuva these, these, this, these laws of fundamentals are written in the section of Tshuva repentance and self-correction but how do you begin self-correction if you don't have the fundamentals of Jewish knowledge how do you begin to work towards the end point if you haven't started with the fundamentals right? you start with a definition of direction of destination before you these are fundamentals and obviously this is the place to begin Let's deal first with the question of the Rambam's source. I tried to indicate it last week. We didn't spell it out in, in detail, but let's try to do that this week. The Mishnah does, in fact, the Mishnah does, in fact, list 13 things. However, the reason that they're not easily identifiable is because they're the very opposite of these 13. But that makes them easily identifiable. If you read through the Mishnah, the Rambam codifies, the Rambam collects, collects, and edits <coughs> the subject matter in the Mishnah throughout the thousands of Mishnahs that relate to this subject, and it turns out that he phrases a list of these issues in his halachic compendium, in the laws of Tshuva, which turns out to be exactly the obverse, the converse of these 13 things. In other words, these 13 statements of faith, I believe with perfect faith that Hashem exists, right? In other words, the principle of belief the principle of God's existence, of Hashem's existence, and one's attachment, one's knowledge of that idea. <laughs> the Rambam phrases in his halachic work, 
exactly in the negative. If you don't believe it, he says, quoting the Mishnah, you have no share in the world to come. <coughs> right? And the Rambam here lists, compiles a list of those things, those problems within Torah, that if you transgress them, you have no share in the spiritual world. Right? No share in the world to come. That's a very, very serious spiritual... That means spiritual excision. It means... It means means many other things as well in practical terms but in spiritual terms it means a spiritual death no connection to an eternal to a transcendent and eternal dimension but is the consequence of certain sins or certain transgressions in the Torah and the Rambam collates and edits that list of things last week I read through the whole list I'm not going to do that again now but if you go through that list carefully which, li- which uh, um, details those things that a Jew can do in some cases that a human can do but that a Jew certainly can do, that cut him or her off from a, from a transcendent existence that leave you only as a biological, statistical reality in the, in the finite and physical world, then you will notice that the first 13 of that list correspond exactly to our 13. The list, I didn't explain this clearly last week, but the list contains more than 13 things. The first 13 are elements of belief, what we call yeah, fundamentals of, of Jewish and spiritual knowledge. Belief is not really the right word, but for want of a better word now, let's call it belief. It actually is much more than belief. It's actually, it, it, it should be knowledge. But those ideas, those elements of knowledge, or if you wish, belief, those are the first 13 things in the list that are things. Then he goes on to other things which are not necessarily beliefs. They're ways of conduct. Uh, um, misleading, the, misleading a community. Or flagrantly breaking certain, certain items of Jewish law in public, right, in a high, high-handed fashion or wielding power <coughs> over a Jewish community <coughs> or murder for example right? murder is not a mistaken belief I mean it may be that too but it's a, it's a practical thing people who speak Lashon Hara right? habitually undoing a circumcision somebody who tries to be uncircumcised right? instead of you know, so these are practical things but the first 13 are elements of knowledge or belief and they're exactly the converse of these and let me just establish that because we'll need it for the next step, step of the discussion the Ramam says like this these are the categories of people who are cut off from the next world, right? No share in the next world. But they are cut off and lost and destroyed. Again, I point out that Kabbalistically, no one's ever lost and destroyed. But certain parts of the soul can be. Without, we have to go into more detail later. But, but until further notice, don't do these. Um, and here they are. Minim, which you will, for want of a better word, translate as atheists. Aprikosin. I have no idea how you translate that. It's going to turn out to be deniers of the reality of Torah. We'll see exactly how that works. Those who deny the Torah specifically, those who deny the resurrection of the dead and the coming of the Mashiach, right? those are the categories. And then he goes into a num- number of others, which we tried to explore briefly last week. Let's look at these in detail. So the Rambam, in the next verse, in the next paragraph, splits up these into their subcomponents. Now look at the list. First of all, what I called minim, which again we'll, we'll use the word atheist, not an accurate word, but, but that category, something to do with that category, the Rabbim says there are five categories here contained herein. And here they are. First one. Ha'emesha that there's no God, and no master of the world. Right? Such a person, such a person who holds that there's no spiritual source, that there's no creator of the world, has in fact no share 
in, in, in a bonded existence together with that creator. Logical, isn't it? The person holds there's no such thing. How does he ever show in that? But we'll see the logic of all of these as we go through. You should try to identify it. That's what he says. Listen to the positive statement. I believe with a perfect faith that Hashem exists, that God exists, and He's the master of the world. Existence and master, exactly the same two sub-elements that he mentioned here. The next element. Secondly, somebody says there is a God, but He is two or more. Denies the ultimate, absolute, complete oneness of Hashem. Number two, I believe with a perfect faith, that Hashem who is blessed, He's single and there's no singleness like his. Obvious converse. Number three. Somebody who says that there is a God and he's one, but he has a body. He has a physical reality or even a diagrammatic, that means even an abstract picture. Never, you know, not a physical body, but he has some Kabbalistic representation. Right? Jews are not allowed to believe that. Three. I believe with a perfect faith. He has no body, and no inhabitor of a body can grasp him. And he has no image or abstract representation. It's exactly the same. Can you see this? Did I convince you? Doubtful. Well, let's keep going. Four. Somebody who says that Hashem exists, and He's one, and He has no body, but He's not the first cause. The language is but sur lakol. That is not the first, the first in existence. And sur in Hebrew means it's very hard to translate. Literally, it means a rock, the rock of all things. But in Hebrew, that's a bad translation because sur, although it technically translates as a rock, it really means, as it were, the rock of formation. You know, the word sur in Hebrew. Anyone who knows little Hebrew knows that the word sur is the root of the word formed image. Siyur and Sayar means that one who forms. A rock, a rock doesn't only mean, you see, we have the rock of our salvation, rock of ages, you know, so like you picture a, a boulder, you know, a, a rock. It's much more than that. It's the rock of, it means the center of existence fanning out into its expansion in reality, which is where things are formed. Sur in the sense of Sayar, right? Yotzer, the one who forms, right? As a, as a technical, you have to know what is the difference between creation and formation. If we get time, we'll, we'll try and go into that. But nevertheless, he is the he is the tzur lakol. He is the in English you'd say the the foundry or the in the Kabbalistic literature the word that's used is machzav. Machzav means a the best English word is a quarry from where the rock is hewn, not the rock, but the quarry from where they hew the rock, right? Where, where it's produced, carved out of the mountain, right? Because the world is a carved out expression of his own essence. It isn't something different. <coughs> that's what it is. What does it say in the fourth one of the principles? I believe with perfect faith. <coughs> yeah, first, what do we say? He's the first and first cause. Shabbos Shmai, that Hashem whose name is blessed, the Creator, who Rishon, who Achron. He's first and last. Huh? First cause. Why does it say and last? This is mysterious. This needs further explanation. Why does he add here and last? And anyway, what does last mean? Surely that contradicts being beyond time. First doesn't contradict being beyond time. First means he is the origin of time. <coughs> so in that sense, he's first. Of course, he goes back before time. And therefore, he's timeless and you can't say anything about it. But he certainly is the point of origin. But what do you mean last? And why did it get added in? Aren't there are a lot of mysteries here. But I, ho- I hope that doesn't leave you with any doubt that it is a parallel yeah, of the list. Okay, that's food for thought. We have to get into that. Five. Somebody who says 
who worships a star or a zodiac or any other intermediary, right? Anything else? To be a it's hard to translate a spokesman or intermediary, intercessor, somebody between me and Hashem, right? That is the fifth one. What's the fifth of the principles? An imam in I believe with a perfect faith that Hashem, who He's the only one to whom it is fitting to pray or serve, and it's not fitting to deal with any other, with anything else, right? No intermediary of any kind, etc., etc., etc. The two are exactly parallel. The one is a positive statement of articles of faith, but it sources the sins that are transgressions of fundamental spiritual elements, right? the punishment for which is unlike many other, many other areas in the Torah, <coughs> many other areas, <coughs> spiritual non-existence. Okay? And therefore, the Torah source is really that there are certain sins that the Torah contains, which are so fundamental, or so, let's say, related to such vital organs spiritually, that transgression of those is the severing of a jugular vein or a coronary artery. It is the severing of a directly necessary life force as opposed to cutting some other part of the body which may bleed but not be lethal. That's what those are. And simply what has happened is they have been translated into positive statements. After all, if those are the things that you should take very great care not to transgress because they're lethal, right, then remaining attached to the belief in those things is an attachment to life. And therefore, they are taught in their negative statements in the Mishnah, but they are phrased in the Rambam's articles of faith, as it were, right, that these are the 13 philosophically fundamental, life-sustaining, life-attaching issues, and they are beautifully expressed as statements of faith as these 13 points. Okay, so far so good? Step one. So we have a source, we have a source in fact, and we, we have not only a source, we have also a place where the Rambam not only sources them, but rules them in halachic decision, right? These are the 13 things that are ruled. This is not a philosophy book. The Rambam's, this, the, the Rambam's uh, Mishnah Torah, El Hazaka, is a lachically binding. He wrote from philosophy books. This is not one of them. This is where the Rambam rules what you need to know or do as a Jew. And these 13 are absolutely fundamental and they're ruled in the negative. You don't do this, you cut off. That's what he says here. Now, just to make it a bit more frightening while we're on the subject... is one question I must not omit here <coughs> which sounds very difficult but just to mention it do you need to deliberately break these things or is accidentally breaking them enough that means you have to deny these things right? somebody who says somebody who says that there is no God and no master of the world do you have to say that categorically willfully and negatively or is it bad enough you were brought up thinking that it's a there's a very serious element to this question, which is not easy to not easy to hear, but that there's a certain extent to which these things do not depend on willful transgression. There are many areas in the Torah where to be culpable or liable, you must transgress knowingly and deliberately. In some cases, even after recognizing and and um, acknowledging a warning of witnesses who are present, where the witnesses have to tell you, if you do that, this is the punishment, and you say you know, and otherwise you're not right. You don't have the same degree of culpability here. Many of our commentaries point out that in a certain very deep way, whether a person is deliberately breaking these things or completely beyond his control, or, or having ever thought about it, if he's missing his connection to the spiritual world, he's missing his connection. Again, a person who doesn't believe in God, right, doesn't believe that there is anything higher. Why? Because that's what his parents told him, or they never told him any different. So, is that person willfully transgressing or trying to disconnect himself? No. But does he have an attachment to the source of life? 
It doesn't. You know, if you slip and cut your coronary artery, I mean, you'd have to slip pretty badly. But if you, if you, if you slipped and cut your jugular vein, and then you said, well, I'm not worried about the bleeding because it's just completely accidental and I'm going to be fine, you know, that is, that is problematic. These are elements of intrinsic attachment to the spiritual world. Okay. Now there's an issue of blame and liability, so that has to be discussed. But these are fundamental to understand that these fundamentals are those very attachments to life itself. Now, let's take the next step. Let's try and deal with the questions that we raised and we did not answer last week. First of them being, are, are we doing okay so far? We <coughs> the question we asked is, why are these <coughs> fundamental? What's the meaning of these? In other words, when the Ikrim reads this list in the Rambam, right? And he sees that the Rambam is phrasing these things, that they were singled out, they were extracted from the Mishnah, and they were phrased as positive articles of faith, things that you need to believe. How does he approach them? What's the concept? His concept is very clearly that these are fundamentals. The Torah gives them this importance because they're philosophically fundamental. Without these, you can't build a religion, right? Let alone Torah. The Rambam's opinion, and that leads him to all his questions. Why not three? Why so many? Why these? Where's free will? Where's the chosenness of the Jewish people? Where's the specialness of the Jewish people? We're special. We're chosen from a source that is, we, we, have, a, we have a source that goes beyond all the human intellect. We have to discuss that. <coughs> I didn't say we're better, but we're different. We've got a special source. Each of the 70 nation groupings has a special, unique source for their role to fulfill on with. So, if Torah is related to the Jewish people, it's not related to other people's, not Torah the way we do Torah. So then why isn't that standard? And you can go on and on with these questions. But the answer is like this. Please, stay with me as very carefully. The Rambam does not approach these in that fashion. There is, and a case can be made, for certain things being fundamental. Three of them argue more, argue less. That the Gemara itself singles out 11 things that are... You could base Torah on Judaism and reduces them and it finally comes out to what? Emunah, faith. Okay. But it's not the Rambam's concept. These are not philosophically fundamental. The Rambam's notion is, and it's very obvious when you see the pattern emerge, the Rambam's opinion here is, and it's such a... almost no words to express its, 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 its centrality and its importance. The Rambam's notion is that these 13 things are not more important than anything else. They're not philosophically more important or more fundamental. These are the space and time of Jewish observance. These, these carve out a different world. These carve out what we call the world to come. These carve out where a Jew should be living. These create the space and time where a Jew should be living, which is another dimension. They're fundamental in the sense... Are, am I, are we making... They're fundamental not in the sense that philosophically you can't go beyond unless you have these. There may be that as well, but that's not the point. The Rambam's notion is, these are the 13 things that if you want to live on a different plane, you want to transcend the human, you want to transcend the finite plane, this is where you must live. You, you need to know, you need to have in your consciousness that there's a creator of the world that is beyond all grasp and all corporeal representation, beyond all division, divisibility, he's, a, he's one, right? that he speaks to us directly and in particular ways, that there's a, this whole project is going someplace and death is not final but there will be a resurrection. Right? These are all the creation of a world that transcends this and will always be there. In a sense, the, 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 the way to learn it is that if you detach yourself from one of these, and incidentally you don't have to detach yourself from all, one is bad enough. One is bad enough. You only need to cut one coronary artery. You know, you don't just slice them all. One, one jugular vein ripped, you know, is, will do the job, you know, long before you get to the second. You don't need, because these are the essential elements of that space and time 
that dimension in which a Jewish consciousness is fostered and grows and lives, and that's where we have our existence. That's what we're here for. We're not here to be here. We're here to be there. And the only way you can build there from here is by means of this. These are the connections. And therefore the logic of these is, the, neg- the negative side of these, the logic is so clear. If you destroy one of these, then you're not living in that place. It's not a punishment, it's a consequence. A Jew is not punished. And that's why we said, can you see the connection? You don't need culpability, you just need to be missing it. It's not a blame and a punishment, it's the consequence. If a person is not building that space, a person firmly believes that they're a decent, humanistic you know, organism in this world, and they're going to spend their life making this world a better place. What's the result of that? They spend their life making the world a better place. They may even be happy. It's got nothing to do with living in an eternal and spiritual world, which is what a Jew is. And therefore, there's a completely different notion of fundamentals. It's got, again, I repeat it, it's got nothing to do with philosophical fundamentals. That's not the point. The point is, these are attachments to another world, another place, another time, another dimension, and that is the dimension where a Jew lives. The rest of Torah, being kind to people and kind to animals and all that, that has spiritual connections and also has benefits here. These are different issues. These carve out the reality. These give you your spiritual existence. Incidentally, you should be able to feel it while you're here. If you live these 13, you say these every day and you live these 13 and you build those into your consciousness, you open that space, you should know how it feels already. You should not feel any different when you die. You should be objective enough about yourself. You should know thoroughly how very... Yeah, how attached you are to your body and how much you could step out of it. How happy would you be to step out of it? How much do you regard your body as, as a reality and who you really are? And how much do you regard it only as a vehicle that's taking you someplace? You should know that. You should know that. You should have such a deep knowledge of where you're holding. You should be so objective about yourself that you should know exactly what it will feel like to be in a different place where there isn't a body and isn't any physicality. And where you are stripped and exposed as, as who you really are. We all put up a facade and an illusion. But you should have the objectivity in your private moments to know how much of a facade those things really are and where you're really holding. It's not a question that when you die you get surprised. I mean, unfortunately, that is the way it's going to be. But it shouldn't be like that. You should know right here and now, if your life would now end and you have to step out of that garment or out of that vehicle, what would you look like? The Gemara says that um, Sadiqim, righteous people in their lives, are called, uh, righteous people when they die are called alive. Wicked people, while they're alive, are called dead. That evil people, while they're alive, are called dead. Because they're dead here. In this, here. They're alive here. But that's only in animal life. Because they, they inhabit in this world like any other biological material. But living in the world that is real life, that never has an end, that life, which is real life, so in that world they don't exist. And therefore they're called dead in a very real sense. It's not metaphorical or poetic. When you talk about life which is meaningful life, not only the temporary existence that generates that, I'm not saying this is meaningful or important, when you talk about real life, the ultimate life, where Jews should be living, so a person like that who's defined himself out of this dimension is not living there, therefore he's called dead. And people of spiritual greatness know where they... They tell the story about the great Hasidic personality, Mendel, his name was, he lived in Svas some time ago. The story is that he was sitting and learning in his house one day. In, in, when, when his wife came back from the village, and she said, Mendel, they say the Mashiach's arrived. She told her husband, somebody was blowing a shofar in the town and spreading the word that the Mashiach had arrived. Jews are always waiting. Right? And there are fits and starts of people who think it's happened. It happens occasionally. And um, he, somebody had done this, so she came home and she said to her husband, they say the Mashiach's arrived. So he, he got up from his books, he walked to the window, he put his head out, and then he came back and he said, no, it's a mistake, you can forget about it, There's nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. He could feel that nothing had changed. 
The Hasidim ask a question. Why did he have to put his head out of the window? And the answer is because him, in his own inner environment, there was no change and there would not be. In his own private environment, he had built it to the level where when that change takes place, there won't be any change to be felt because they're already living in that zone. He had to put his head into the external world which he hadn't been managed to change yet. And that takes more than one minute's effort. But in his own private sphere, he's already living in that zone. And therefore... And the Kabbalists say such a person dies by taking off an old garment, that's all. They step out of their body like a person discarding a cloak that is no longer needed. Or stepping out of a vehicle that has reached its destination. Who would remain in the vehicle? Who would get the destination and remain in the vehicle? There has to be something wrong with you. Only a person who thinks that the vehicle is the destination. So a person who thinks that this is where they're living, and they start exerting effort to make this place a permanent home, must they spend hours in the gymnasium every day trying to build muscle. Why? Because they think that that's where they really live. But it's just to be more and more painful to step out of. How much attention should you pay to a vehicle? Enough to keep it in perfect work, working order to get you to the destination. Why on earth would you pay more attention to the vehicle than it needs to get you where it's taking you? Only a mistaken consciousness would do that. A person who thinks that the vehicle is where he's actually living. So a person who thinks that they're actually living in their body in the long term is going to start investing in their body in the long term. Then it's very difficult enough to step out. <coughs> The paradox, of course, which is another subject not for tonight, is that the body itself is more enjoyed when you know it's only a vehicle taking you to some place. When you think it's a real permanent thing, then as it starts to change and wear out and grind down, so, then it becomes very difficult. This is the concept of the of ego. Let's ask the next question and see if we can begin to approach that as well. So far, so good? Concept clear? Let's ask the next question. <coughs> The challenge we left with ourselves with last week was this. I was not accurate in saying that the 13 items here are parallel to the 13 items here. And the reason is there's one discrepancy. There are a number of challenging elements that need to be, need to be thought in. As, as we go through this discussion, or these discussions, we'll try to, try to study them. But there's one glaring discrepancy, and that is that the list of 13 here includes an item that the list here does not. When you look at the culled sources from the Mishnah in the Rambam Salafic work, he counts 13 <coughs> in a different way than he counts here. Here he splits one into two and ends up with 13. And here he includes one and combines the other two. Namely, in this list, the 11th principle states this. I believe with a perfect faith that the Creator, whose name is Blessed. Gives good to those who guard his mitzvahs, commandments, punishes those who transgress his commandments. Punishment in Jewish thinking is never vindictive or retributive. It is not never, I should say, there's a special category of that. But it is a corrective process. It is a painful resensitization of the parts that were desensitized. But be that as it may, reward and punishment is a fundamental of the equipment. Even those who attack the Rambam and say you could have stated three items and not thirteen would include as one of the three the doctrine of reward and punishment. Right? That is, reward and punishment isn't only the honest statement of what life's all about. It's a destination. Right? It's a destination. It's the concept of consequence. Consequence is destination. Just like the destination of a voyage is where you go to, <coughs> reward and punishment is consequence of every action and every life moment. Right? And therefore, it's destination. You don't have any project without a destination. On the contrary, that comes first. And therefore it's included in the list. But the great mystery is 
in the 13 items for which a person loses a share in the world to come, Raman doesn't mention it at all. Doesn't mention it at all. Do you, do you hear the challenge? Again, let's get this clear, because you won't enjoy the answer unless you see the question very clearly. In the list of 13 things that you must know as a Jew, if you want to carve out a different space, right, you want to live in that higher world, <coughs> one of the things that is absolutely a funda- foundation or a fundamental, the doctrine of reward and punishment. Turn to the list of things that are spiritually negative, that if you omit them or destroy them, you don't exist in that world. Reward and punishment not mentioned at all. Now, first question is, why is it in the one list and not in the other? But a deeper question is this, how can it be omitted? Do you know what that means? Let's think it through together. It sounds bizarre. But the consequence is this. You have to believe it, right? You have to know it, correct? You must know it. It's in the list. I believe with a perfect faith that it rewards and punishes. Here it is. These are the 13 items that you've known. The Rambam, in his, in his more detailed analysis, not these statements, goes into great detail. Reward and punishment. But if you deny it, well, this list is a list of denials, right? The person says God, Chassajom, doesn't exist. Or he's two or more, right? Or he deals with some intermediary. Or doesn't believe in Torah, etc. He's dead, spiritually. But this person comes along and says, I deny the concept of reward and punishment. Blatantly denies it. Consequence? Nothing. What does that mean? Do you hear the problem? It's a very sharp, you can't miss this problem. The list is so parallel that when one of them suddenly disappears and another one suddenly splits into two, right, to get 13, incidentally, why did it have to be 13? Why didn't you just have 12? Why is he so anxious to have 13? Now, let's, let's touch on this. I can see you want to answer the first question first. Right? <laughs> <laughs> That's a sign of wisdom. So let's answer the first question first while you figure out an answer to that question. Right? Mm-hmm. And by the time we've done this, you will have worked that out. I won't even have to say. Right? <laughs> How's your multitasking? <laughs> like this. That's a very challenging question and it needs thought. But the answer is very, very beautiful. And it's along these lines. Again, there's much more to say about it, but let's just point out the direction. It's an exquisite idea. The Rambam himself, in this same work, later, in not only the same work, in the same section, in the later chapter, talks about reward and punishment. And he has two whole sections devoted in very, very great detail to the concept of reward. Some of it you'll recall we studied together when we looked at the concept of why the Torah does not mention reward and punishment. Uh, many of you possibly were here a few months ago, or a year ago, we went into the discussion of why the Torah does not appear to mention a transcendent or infinite reward. It doesn't mention the world to come. The text, scriptural text, never mentions that. Under that discussion, the, the, the Rambam says this. And it's, a, it's a very famous piece. It says like this. You can look it up yourself in the ninth and 10th chapters. He goes into it extensively. By the way, this will all be translated if your Hebrew is not good enough. This, these ten chapters, which are so fundamental, they deal with them. They absolutely <coughs> covers just about everything. I've been translated as one volume, and we have it here, which is called The Laws of Repentance, with, with um, a excellent translation and, and basic notes. So you can look it up. In the ninth and tenth chapter, the Rambam says that a person should not serve for the reward. 
Al Yomer Abba, a person should not say, Hareini Oseh Mitzvah Satera, I'm doing the mitzvahs of the Torah, Oseh Bechokmasa, and I'm, I'm involving myself in its wisdom, Kedeshia Kabbal Kola Brachas, that I should receive all the blessings, etc., etc., etc. You should not serve for reward. Right? You should not be serving for reward. You should do it because it's right. In intrinsic morality, and an attachment to the truth demands that you do what is right and true because it's right and true, not because you'll be rewarded. You want your child not to do any damage and to do the things that they should that are good because the child has an intrinsic goodness that understands it, not because they're afraid of being punished or they'll get rewards. When a child's young, you start out that way. We all need motivation. Rambam himself, when he deals with this subject, in fact, Rambam himself says, it's worth looking up, he says that we are all human and therefore the way to grow into this maturity is to start with reward. He says when you take a child and you teach a child Torah, you can't take a child and make the world of ideas attractive. It's not natural. It's not natural for a little child to enjoy the world of abstract ideas. And so you say to the child, you learn Torah with me, I give you nuts. So the child, you give the nuts so the child learns Torah, but the child learns the Torah so they can get the nuts. That's the way it works. It's a deal. Rabbi Yerucham Avmir used to say, that the sweetness of the male-female relationship is because it's so important to Hashem. So he's prepared to make it sweet, but because he wants us to do this so that we can get married and produce continuity. So he's prepared to make it a very potentially a very sweet thing. Human beings are attracted to that area because it's sweet. So the deal's like this. He makes it a sweet experience, so we'll be motivated. Why? Because what he's really interested in is the results. We, in our immaturity, we may be more interested in the sweetness, so we do it for that, and he gets his results. The analogy that Rebuchim used to say was it's like a mother who wants a child to eat. You know, many mothers are anxious that the child should eat. And many children are not always that keen. It happens. So the mother smears the honey very thick on the bread. Why? She's not interested in the honey. She wants the child to eat the bread. The child's not interested in the bread. He wants the honey. But they have a deal. She puts a lot of honey on the bread. The child eats the bread to get the honey. And he's happy because he's getting the honey. The mother, yeah, doesn't mind putting the honey on the bread, although it's not her primary interest, because the child eats the bread. And they have a wonderful deal. Rabbi Yukum used to say, incidentally, but a schlechter kid, a bad child, licks off the honey and throws away the bread. <laughs> <laughs> Which is not that funny. Because if you look at male-female relationships in this generation, that is exactly the pattern. It's trying to lick off the honey without engaging in the consequence and the responsibility which is exactly what it should be he only puts the honey there so that you eat the bread so what kind of morality is it to try to look off the honey and throw away the bread that's exactly what that's it but that's the concept says the Ramam that's what you do with the child you take the child you say give you nuts when he's older you sell buy you fine clothes because you can't buy him anymore with nuts so you tell him that he'll look good when he's older you tell him it will give him power because power is more appealing. You know, there's a, there's a shift in balance. Younger people, especially, especially men, younger men usually more attracted to physical sensuous things and less to the power and, uh, and, and honor drive. Older men, usually, the physical and sensuous thing falls more into place and there's more of an importance and a drive for honor and power and honor. That's usually where it goes. So when he's young, you tell him to give you nuts. When he's old, you tell him, you buy him fine clothes. When he's older than that, you say it will give you power. Right? When it's older than that, you say it will give you honor. They'll call you Rabbi. They'll call you Rabbi. They'll call you Master. Right? And that's where he stops. That's where Ramam stops. Now, one great sage of this generation said, why does he stop there? Because there's another stage. The greatest stage beyond that, when it's person mature enough to do it because it's beautiful and right. 
Not because he's going to be introspective. Surely that's not the end point. You start to tell him to become a great Torah sage and genius so that people will admire you? It's fine to do that. It's fine to do that. And it's absolutely necessary because it provided you learning genuine Torah and producing the real goods because we all need motivation. It's not the end of the road. The end of the road is not doing it to be honored. The end of the road is to get beyond the honor and do it because it's beautiful. Why does the Ramah say that? And a cynical comment on this is because that's where the world is buried. The person gets to the doing it for honor. Who, who gets beyond that? Now, that's <coughs> but that is the... Um, those, those are levels of motivation. But ultimately, we are striving for the world in which we do these things because they're right. We're not looking for a world where we do these things for reward. Now, this is why the Torah does not mention a spiritual reward. Okay? Because, yes, the famous question, why does the Torah, I'm not going to go into detail now, but the famous question is, why does the Torah not state that there's a reward of infinity for serving correctly in this life? That famous question. And furthermore, <coughs> furthermore, you'll remember, the, pair, the, the um, twin question to that is, the Torah does discuss reward, but only mentions finite reward. Right? The Torah says, in the uh, Chukosai, the Torah says, if you walk in my ways and keep my statutes, I will reward. Well, it's our reward. It says, I will give you rain in its season, crops will be fruitful, the animals will be there, will be no wars, land of Israel secure, no armies, not even armies, let alone wars, etc., etc., etc. That will happen. So the problem is, the Torah doesn't mention the world to come, which is what, we, which what we're living for, but it does mention a finite reward. Right? Answer, Rambam's famous answer, and he says it right here, that's not reward. What the Torah says over there is simply expenses. That's all. It's an expense account. It's not salary. All Hashem's saying is, if you keep my ways and you walk in my statutes and you do what you should, I'll give you whatever you need to keep doing it. Just like a company says to an employee who's a traveler, right? Traveling salesman. The company says, look, stay in the best hotels, eat the best food, drink the best wine, bring home the deals. And that's not a salary. That's expenses. And they write a detail in the contract. You can stay at the best hotels, you can do whatever you want to, provided your deals are more meaningful than the Expense account. But then at the end of the contract, there's a salary as well. That's not salary, that's expenses. This, incidentally, as an aside, is why righteous people try to live as cheaply and simply in the world as possible. Reason is, when a person runs up a big expense account, he should be anxious that he's bringing home the deals that profit the company more than his expenses. If you're going to stay in expensive hotels and drink expensive wine, and you're going to make some meager deals, your job is in jeopardy. And therefore, when you're going to live it up in this world, enjoying all the riches of wealth and pleasure and family and, uh, and, and, and the beauty, incredible, incredible, rich beauty of this world, you've got to bring home deals. If you live very simply and very frugally, you take very little for yourself out of the world, then you may have a leg to stand on when they ask you why you didn't bring home deals. But the principle for a righteous individual is to live in a simple fashion, right? Because, among other reasons, so that you can show a balance of Right? That's the idea. But the second part of the question is this. The Rambam says, when the Torah stipulates the reward, which is this finite reward in a finite world, says the Rambam, that's not rewards expenses. So then there's a second question. But why does the Torah also say reward? We haven't answered that question. Again, if you write me a contract and it says, look, you're going to sell goods for the company and here are the expenses you're entitled to. There's no problem with that. But then at the end of the contract, I look and I see, at the end of the month we pay your salary. Those expenses are not for me. They get paid to the hotels. Not? Where's my salary? Torah doesn't mention that. Says the Rambam the following thing. If the Torah mentioned reward, you would be tempted to serve for the reward. And that wouldn't be love. 
And therefore the Torah richly hints at the reward between the lines. And the oral law is full of it. But to write it in a contract would change your love of Hashem and serving Him out of a love relationship, like a marital relationship, change that into a mercenary commercial relationship. In fact, the deeper commentaries say, much more sharply, and I can't go into detail now, it's pointed out, the deeper sources say that if the Torah mentioned a reward, you'd be obliged to serve for the reward. Because the Torah only mentions that which is obligatory. There's nothing in the Torah that's just sort of information. Right? Every word of Torah is considered to be, and ob- it's sometimes challenging to see how it is an obligation. But your obligation is to learn every word of Torah as if it's telling you something you're obliged to. Torah is not a list of rights. Torah is a list of obligations. Not like the constitutions and, and, and bills of rights and, and, and of, of the nations. Our Torah doesn't give rights or, or information. Our Torah gives obligations. So if the Torah stipulated reward, technically, although it sounds bizarre, you'd be obliged to serve for the reward, because you'd have to... The Torah does not want you to serve for the reward, it wants you to serve because you love Hashem. Does it mind that you know that there's a reward? Of course not, He wants you to know. But a father says to his child, look, do me a favor, do this for me, and do me what I ask you, and I'm telling you it will be very, very good for you. Don't, Don't ask me to spell it out. You know how much I love you? You know I want to give you more than... But whatever you do, trust me, it's going to be very good. Right? That's what the father says to the child. The child acts out of love for the father. The father, but if the father says to the child, look, if you do this for me, I'll give you the following, right? Put, yeah, this because of this. So then he's changing it into, in a marriage. The two people love each other in a friendship or in a marriage, for example. So then, are you kind and, and giving to the partner or one spouse because it's good for you? What will that change the relationship into a very, very commercial, mercenary relationship? Is there any problem knowing that if you're wonderful and loving and giving to one's partner or spouse, it is good for you? There's no harm in knowing that. And there's no harm that the other party knows that that's true as well. On the contrary, if they really love you, they'll be happy about that. There's no problem. But it's very, very different if you do it because it's good for you. Do you understand? If I treat you well, right, because I love you, and when I treat you well because I love you, it's very sweet for me. I enjoy the way you respond. And I enjoy the giving itself. Is there any problem with that? Of course not. Do you mind? Of course you don't. I hope. Right? And I don't mind that you know, and you don't mind that I know, etc., etc. Et but if you became aware that I was being sweet to you and loving only because it was good for me, that's not called love. And therefore, the Torah allows it to be known that it is sweet and good. But it doesn't write it as a contract. When you do something for a spouse, right, and you say to them, you're doing this, and you, you make it an act of love that you do. But if you came to the spouse and I'll do this for you if you do that for me, right, there must be a consequence written in, you'd be reducing, and therefore the Torah hints very richly, and it's written between the lines, but it is not a, right, okay, now, with that background, is that, is that with that background in mind, which is that this, the correct level of service is to do these things because they are right and true, and ultimately because of a love of Hashem. Fear also comes into it, right? There's also a level of fear. That's never annulled. But the higher level is the level of love. Not that you're afraid of punishment, but because regardless of the punishment, you're doing it because of a love of what should be done. Now, let's get back to our list. A Jew should know that there's reward and punishment. Everything wrong with that? You should know there's reward and punishment. That means you know, what you, you know how you're dealing with Hashem. By the way, I should, should not fail to point out, the Torah doesn't mention reward. It certainly mentions punishment. It certainly mentions punishment. Not only does it mention punishment, it certainly mentions punishment in the next world. You know that? The Torah says, openly, that if you don't do these things, you'll be cut off from the next world. 
It does talk about the next. But it talks about it in terms of being cut off. Why does the Torah do that? Because dealing with love in such a way that the consequences are unstated and hinted at between the lines is the nature of love. But to punish somebody brutally and bitterly and not have warned them beforehand? That's not right. You understand? And therefore, the love between us and how we treat each other and the sweetness and beauty between ourselves, that's an unstated thing. It's in the nature of the love. But if I'm going to give you the harshness of the punishment that the Torah describes, you don't say it beforehand. Therefore, the Torah is very, very detailed. There are, there are literally hundreds of the most horrific and holocaust type, and we've been through it all. And how can you doubt it? The Torah spells it out in very great detail, and we experience all of it. So that is, that is stated there. Now, you believe in reward and punishment? You have to know it? Absolutely. It's a tenet of Torah. It's there between the lines. It's, the oral law is full of it. It's absolutely clear. Why is it omitted from the list? Why is it omitted from the list? It is that if you transgress, it has no consequence. <coughs> Let me try my best to express this. Here are 13 articles of faith. You have to believe that Hashem exists, that is one, that is incorporeal, that He knows what you're thinking and doing. All the 13 articles, right? Including reward and punishment. Let's take the negative for a moment. Let's take a person who denies those, denies Hashem's existence, right? Listen carefully, stay with me carefully. If you deny Hashem's existence, do you have a share in Him? No. Why? Because your share in the next world is that place that you've carved out, which is your unique connection to Hashem. That's what it is. That is who you are. If you don't have that in your consciousness, in your mind, in your neshama, then you aren't there. Number two, you believe that Hashem is, uh, is, uh, um, is, uh, is more than one. Well, then it's not absolute, is he? You've broken him down to some... So then how do you expect to have an infinite connection? Three, you believe that he's physical or corporeal. So you're talking about something ordinary, something in the world. You're not talking about another space and time, etc. Right? You're breaking it down and you don't have it. All of it. You don't believe that the Torah is true. That the Torah was given and tells us the truth about what we have to do. Well, how do you enter that world? The Torah is the channel of connection. How you build that world? You don't have it. You deny prophecy. You deny the resurrection. You think you're going to die and stay dead. So you're going to die and stay dead. You want, to, you want to get up again? You want to be resurrected? To build that into your consciousness? How's your neshama going to slip your body out of the grave? If your neshama is dead? Etc. Right? So you need those things to construct them. Imagine a person who knows all those things. And remember that if you miss one, you're not there. Imagine an individual who knows all those things. All of those things. Listen to this. I deeply believe that God exists I know that it's one that is incorporeal, that the Torah is true, that prophecy is true, that the Mashiach will come, that there's a resurrection of the dead. I don't believe in reward and punishment. I could be better. Here's a person who serves Hashem. He keeps all the mitzvahs in the Torah. With a deep knowledge of Hashem's... We're not talking about somebody who breaks anything else. This person knows all of these things. Hashem exists and He's one, and He knows what I'm thinking and doing, and there'll be a resurrection and there'll be a world to come. Yeah, all that... But I don't believe that there's reward or punishment. That means, so why, excuse me, so why are you doing this? Because it's right. Because I believe in these things. What could be better? You want to punish a person? The truth is this person is missing something desperately important. Desperately important. It's one of the 13 articles that the person is missing. It's desperately important. It's a gaping hole in his Jewish knowledge and belief. But you want to punish him when he's serving yeah, despite the fact that he holds that there's no consequence. And therefore, the punishment, the, the concept of reward and punishment is an absolute foundation and fundamental. But for a person who functions without that, in a bizarre fashion, although he's missing or she's missing, an a, um, absolute pillar of 
Jewish knowledge and Jewish belief and something that's required to build the world of reward and punishment, the world of consequence. Nevertheless, the harshness of denying a person's reward yeah, because they, they, they held there was no reward and they did everything. Yeah. And that's why you come across many stories, particularly in the Hasidic tradition, of people who were prepared to sell the reward for a mitzvah. People who had the opportunity to do a mitzvah and sold the reward. Right? Bought the mitzvah at the cost of the reward. And the Hasidim said to, the, said to them, why are you doing a mitzvah? There's no reward. So what could be better? What could be better than doing a mitzvah when I've given away the reward for the mitzvah? For once I'll be able to do it for the right reason, which is just because it's a mitzvah. That is a possible line of thinking. Perhaps it needs more. But it's a possible line of thinking in answer to this question. Let's summarize what we said this evening by way of introduction without having yet gone into any of the details about Hashem's existence or His oneness or His non-physicality. All of these issues are obviously major and massive areas for investigation and study and they are the most... Rambam himself says an amazing comment in one place. He says, I love nothing more than teaching fundamentals of belief. That, that means it's very precious to me that of all Torah material to teach the things on which on which belief rests because these are foundations, these are fundamentals of, and therefore this should be especially precious to us. So what we studied this evening was simply by way of introduction to the Ikrim and dealing with some of the questions and problems that are raised by the basic understanding of what these fundamentals are and the most important message to take away from the discussion and the musician would have the privilege of studying it together in much more detail in the future, the main message to take home is that these are not foundations or fundamentals of philosophy. But that's another approach that may well be valid. This is something entirely different. These are the elements that build the foundations. These are the, these are the building blocks. These are the components of a dimension which is utterly unlike anything that we experience in this world. Right? Which is the, where, the place where a Jew should be living. Not only where after death, when that temporary separation of body and soul takes place. But this is the dimension where our consciousness should be directed now. This is a world that you have to build while you're here. You can't build it when you're there. You can't build it when you leave. You have to build it while you're here. And the way you build it is by studying these elements. It's not a natural thing to believe in things that aren't tangible and aren't uh, seen at face value. It, it takes a tremendous amount of effort, especially for a generation that wasn't brought up with it. Not only not brought up with it, but many of us were brought up with a uh, negative view, negative vision on, on many of these elements. And yet there's nothing more important than having these as an intrinsic part of one's awareness. Therefore, the message is, <coughs> what we need to do is be passed before anything else, perhaps before anything else, <coughs> in terms of knowledge, is to investigate these areas, become knowledgeable about them, understand what are the technical issues, what are the proofs, as it were, of these things, what goes beyond proof, and begin to build that world which transcends this.